0: Speech And my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Today we begin Lent, this season leading up to Easter. If we were upstairs, you would really notice it because there's a lot more purple. Uh, We got one purple, two purples, I guess, here. Um. It is very early in the year this year, but it's, it's this period leading up to Easter, and what would happen is a lot of people would be baptized and join the church on Easter. So they would take the period leading up to Easter to get ready, to think about how much they needed the cross, to study God's Word, all so that they can make a proclamation of faith and be risen with Christ on Easter morning. So that's the tradition of Lent. So... In coming to Lent, I wanted to take some time to reflect on the cross. Why the cross? Paul says to the Corinthians, who are debating about he and a man named Apollos, and who's more important, and who should we be disciples of, he says, I didn't come with lofty, fancy words and great wisdom. You know what I preached? I wanted to tell you one thing about Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. Period. That's what Paul emphasized. That's the center of Paul's teaching. He says it multiple times in his books. What I want you to know about is Christ and Christ crucified. So what does it mean that Christ was crucified? Well, Paul in the chapter before actually calls it foolishness. It's foolishness to follow a crucified Jesus. I think we miss this. I think we miss how foolish it really is. Do you know who the crucified ones were in the Roman world? They were the ones who went against the Roman Empire, and guess what? They're the ones that lost. They're the losers. The ones that get crucified are the ones that get put down. They're not the ones that you follow. The cross is this great symbol. We miss the shame of this, Um, that when you were crucified, you were crucified right outside the city gates, very public, Okay, so that anybody coming in and out of the city was reminded right there who's in charge. The Romans are in charge. You were, you were crucified naked, which never makes it into any of our paintings or any of our sculptures, but for the most part, you were crucified naked. It was total shame. Nobody. Can, can you imagine? I've seen multiple people this morning have cross necklaces on. Imagine how gruesome you would look to somebody in the first century with a cross necklace on. It's like wearing a, a, a noose around your neck as, a, as jewelry. Or a, a, an electric chair. You would never wear a symbol of a cross. I mean, think about that if you were in the first century. But, but the cross became this symbol not of loss, but of victory. Became the center of our faith. If we were upstairs in the sanctuary, you know what the whole sanctuary is built around? A giant cross at the center. What happened that the cross became the center of everything? It's an, what do we sing about it as? An emblem of suffering and shame. That doesn't even cut it. It's an emblem of loss, of grief. Paul says it's foolish to follow a crucified person. It can be a stumbling block for people. We miss the shame. And how did it become the crucifixion? We call it the crucifixion. We don't call JFK the assassination, right? Because there's lots of assassinations. In fact, the day Jesus was crucified, there's two others next to him. Do you know how many crucifixions there have been over the centuries? Yet this one is called the crucifixion. This is the one. I love this illustration of talking about it with kids, right? That the blood of Jesus washes away our sin. And yet I'm fearful that we have, as adults, not really totally appreciated all that's going on on the cross. The Bible spends a ton of time and gives us a ton of metaphors trying to help us understand what the cross does for us. And yet for most of us, we can explain it the way it is. My kids would explain it. But have we really fathomed what happens on this cross? When the Bible talks about it, it uses a lot of different metaphors. It's really important to make a distinction, though, that the cross itself is not a metaphor. For the the Christians throughout history, the cross was something that actually happened. It's a historic event. And then what we would do is the, the church, to try to understand that event, would use different metaphors and pictures. Like they would look back, we're going to talk about today, they'd look back at the blood sacrifice system of the Old Testament. Say, oh, that's what Jesus does. Or they'd look at ransom and redemption, and they'd say, that's what Jesus did. Or they'd look at a courtroom, and they'd say, that's what Jesus did. And so over the next few weeks, leading up to Easter, we're going to explore some of these metaphors and motifs, trying to get deeper in the cross. For instance, why a cross? Why wasn't Jesus beheaded or stoned? There are other ways to die. Why, in particular, a cross? What did it accomplish? What is sin, and how can Jesus take mine? How can Jesus take all of our sin? How does Jesus die for me? If Jesus dies for me, how come I still have to die? How come there's all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, and why don't we sacrifice while we're together this morning? So, let's dive in. Today, I want to talk about the image of the blood sacrifice. That we sacrifice, they used in the Old Testament, sacrifice animals, believing that the blood would be traded to the gods, would be multiple gods, but in this case, to the one true God. But let's have a moment of honesty here. Is anybody else a little uncomfortable with the language we sometimes use for the cross, for blood? Is it a little weird to anybody else that we sing about blood? Anybody want to admit? I'm a little weirded out by it, personally. I just don't. Like, who talks about blood? We, we sing about blood. It's weird. It, we don't talk about death that much. And I'm convinced in our culture, we don't. How, how often do we see blood? Used to be in other cultures when you wanted to eat chicken, you went out and caught a chicken and had to take care of that yourself. Now you can go to a restaurant and you can decide how pink you want the burger before you even see it, right? We don't see blood anymore. We don't talk about blood. The only time we really see blood is in pretty grotesque movies, right? Where it's, it's not real blood. It's, it's over-glorified blood. The Book of Acts says this. Be careful. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock to which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which He obtained by His own blood. Scripture after Scripture refers to the blood of Jesus Taking away the sin of the world. It's kind of a weird metaphor. And it's a metaphor, frankly, that's losing a lot of ground in theology. A lot of people don't want to talk about the blood. A lot of people are grossed out by singing about blood. And yet, I'm going to make the argument today that I think it's pretty important that maybe this isn't our favorite metaphor. Maybe it's not the best metaphor in our culture today. But there's something to be learned from this metaphor. In fact, it's probably the strongest and most used metaphor in the Bible. I also think, by the way, that we don't sacrifice in our culture for anything. Uh, used to be if you wanted to get a car, you saved up in a jar, you put your money, until eventually you had the money for the car, and then you went and bought the car. Now we don't have to make any sacrifices in our culture. We get what we want when we want it. We call it credit. Okay? Everybody wants to get what they want. They don't want to sacrifice anything. They want to get everything that they have. And so even the idea of sacrifice, let's take away the blood for a second. Even the idea of sacrificing, I think, is foreign in our culture. But it wasn't in the first century. So we've got to do a little bit of work here. Everybody ready for this? The only way to really understand the blood sacrifice is you've got to think as if you're in the first century. So imagine you're in the first century. Okay? You're Jewish. And you've grown up. Going to Jerusalem, let's say you live pretty close. You live just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. So whenever there's a big festival, whenever there's a sacrifice, you are close enough, you can go in, stay with relatives, and be a part. And you can see some of the sacrifices that happened during the special events. Now, you got to understand, Jerusalem, everybody came to. Jerusalem, a very, very small city. But when it was, when it was Passover... When it was not Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when it was these big festivals, the city would be packed. Okay, so you're in a little teeny house with twenty other relatives who have also come to the festival, and you're all just sprawled out on the floor, sleeping wherever you can because it is packed everywhere. The streets. Imagine the smells. You're in Jerusalem, crowded streets. You think it's very cool in Jerusalem. No, it's, it's hot and it's dusty. People have traveled and they're all sweaty. So you're jammed in tight, kind of squeezing like you're at a fair or something. But, but that's everywhere in Jerusalem at that day. Imagine the animals being brought in, right? If they're going to be sacrificing animals, what do you think you have to have? Animals. So if we're going to have goats or sheep or bulls, guess what? You got those in the street too, okay? Those leave remnants right? So you got all kinds of stuff going on in the street. It's dirty, it's smelly, it's busy, can't see your feet to watch walk your steps. You hear all these people, you hear all these animals. Uh, if you ever tried to get a goat to do what you want it to do, they don't always like to do that, right? You got goats yelling off in the background, and goats sound weird. Have you ever been around goats? they yelling, are just weird. So, so, so take it in now. Take in the smells in the first century. You're, you're packed in Jerusalem. Take in what you're hearing, all the noise. And you go somewhere in Jerusalem. You can see the smoke rising up from the altar. And you know, that's where the temple is. Everybody can see that because we're burning all day. So you make your way finally to the temple for the big moment. You in your whole life have been talking about blood, seeing blood. It's a little more a part of life. It's a more violent time than what you and I live in today. Um, But blood for you is not the symbol of death that we often associate. It's really a symbol of life. Your life is in your blood. Okay, it's only associated with death because you lose your blood. Because when you lose your blood, you die. But blood is really a symbol of life. So you go to Yom Kippur, let's say. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Atonement means, you can break down the word, it's really easy to understand, at one meant To make at one. It's a relational term where God and His people are made one. They're made in right relationship. So it's broken, we're made two by something, call that something sin, okay, and then we're made at one with that, with God. You've read in the scriptures how God says He is your Lord. You are part of his people. God often starts his commands. I am the Lord your God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Even though you, you might think, sitting here in this room today, that this is a very violent system, you need to also understand that from a first century perspective, this God is pretty gracious. This is a God who calls you his people before the sacrifices. He says you're mine before we've got any blood shed. And you need to also understand that the gods of other peoples are requiring a lot more than goats and bulls. There's this place outside Jerusalem called Gehenna, which is sometimes translated as hell. And there, some of the people, even some of the Jewish people, would sacrifice their children to the gods and throw their children off into a cavern because that's what they felt those gods demanded. This god doesn't demand that you cut yourself. This god doesn't demand that you give up your children. This god is a graceful god who lets you have animals. See, this is a different perspective, right? Than we would take sacrificing animals. This God is graceful. But this God is also holy. You've gone in and you've seen the temple. okay? And in the temple, this was much better upstairs, where our sanctuary is actually set up like a temple. But you have a holy of holies, where the priest only went one time a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, to sacrifice to God directly. Then there was the holy area, where the priest would go in every so often to keep the candles burning, And then there was an open court. And so if you look at our sanctuary upstairs next time, you'll see there's like a flat area, and then there's a main area, and then there's where everybody else sits. Okay, And out where everybody else sits, there would be an altar. It was pretty basic. It was pretty large, but it was a big square is what it was. I mean, these little kind of points on the corners where these sacrifices would be made. On the Day of Atonement, uh, so if you went there all the time, though, think about this for a second you always got to see that God was back there, right? You weren't allowed in there. There's giant curtains separating you from God. The priest got to go in there. But you always knew you couldn't mess with that God because that God's so holy that I can't go near that God. I've got to be out here, and I've got to make this sacrifice. On the Day of Atonement, called Yom Kippur, there'd be a bull. And the priest would take his hands and put it on the bull. It had to be perfect, without blemish and uh, then would sacrifice that bull, burn that entire bull uh, on the altar to God. Again, imagine the smells. Imagine visually seeing all this happen in front of you. Also, there would be two goats on Yom Kippur, both perfect and without blemish. One would be called the sin offering, and, and the priest would do the same thing. He'd put his hands on the head of the goat, and the guilt of the sins of the people of Israel would be passed to this goat, and then it would be sacrificed on the altar. That would be called the sin offering. Then there was a second goat. In this goat, the priest would put his hands on the head of that goat, and that goat would be allowed to receive grace and go free into the wilderness. Does anybody know what that goat was called? The scapegoat. That's right. We still use the term today off of the sacrificial system. The scapegoat. That was the goat that marked not only God's judgment for sin, but also God's grace for sin. Imagine living with this symbol. Imagine seeing this as a child growing up with this. What would you understand? You'd understand the extreme holiness of God. You'd understand if I got to do this every year, that means I am not very holy. I'm pretty sinful. But at the same time, you're getting the sense that God is graceful. A very similar thing would happen during the Passover. Passover lamb would be sacrificed. You would celebrate on Thursday night. Remember Jesus' last supper. Celebrate in your family, and you'd eat lamb and have a Passover celebration. And then on Friday, about 3 p.m., the, there'd be a sacrifice of the one Passover lamb on behalf of Israel. Lamb without blemish, perfectly white. Same thing, priest, lay his hand. Sacrifice this lamb on the altar. What do you know if you're in the first century? You know that God is holy. You know that you are not. What you understand is that God is trying to accommodate himself to you. Okay, This, doesn't, this isn't a rough system if you're in there, the way we look at it. Okay, God is trying to give you grace, give you opportunities to be right with him. You understand your sin is not just the bad things you do. See, we talk about that with the kids. Sin is the bad stuff that you do. And it's the good stuff that you don't do. But sin is more than that. Sin is actually an archery term. Okay? It's used in, in archery to say you missed the mark. So sin is how much from the bullseye you are. Sin doesn't make any sense without a reference to God because God's a bullseye. Sin is how much are you not like God or not like God's will for your life, okay? When you say, I sinned a little bit, well, it doesn't matter if you sin a little bit. The sin is black and it still messes with you because even though you might think you sin a little bit, compared to what? Compared to a murderer, okay, you're probably doing okay, but compared to God, the holy God that's in the Holy of Holies, you can't touch him, you can't go near him or you die, that kind of holy God, ooh, you're not that good, You've missed that mark pretty far. And that sin is more than just something you do. It's actually talked about in the Bible as a power, something that works in your life to hold you back, something that has control over your life, like a darkness you just can't quite get rid of. Imagine, though, if you would understand that, right? If you're in the first century, and every year you've got to go sacrifice, you see it all the time. You're reminded, oh, i got to do this again. i got to do this again. Now imagine you're in the 1st century. You've grown up with the sacrifices you've you've sensed all this. But now you hear about Jesus. And listen to all this stuff about Jesus. You ready? Jesus is without sin. He's blameless. No blemish whatsoever. He's born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was the place where these sheep and goats were raised and they were brought up to Jerusalem. Jesus is born in the same place, seen by shepherds that night. Where all these sheep and lambs and goats would come up into the city. He dies in Jerusalem. He dies actually at the same time, just about as the Passover lamb. If you track the timing of when Jesus actually dies on the cross, he's dying on the cross just as that priest is slaughtering that lamb. Okay? Jesus claims at his Passover. This is my blood. That's the blood of the Passover lamb that was shed over the door. He's saying, I am that lamb. He is the one who makes atonement. But isn't it amazing that he also lives again? Jesus is the sin offering and the scapegoat. That's the beauty of Easter. He's the one that dies for our sin, and he's also the one that lives to show grace. He is both goats. Although we normally don't call him the goat of God. He's normally the lamb of God because of the connection to Passover, but he is both goats. He is that sacrifice. His blood is shed. He takes that guilt, just like the priest laying his hands. Okay? We lay our hands on Jesus and we give him our guilt and he takes that guilt and his blood is shed. He gives up his life, not his death. Blood is a symbol of life. He gives up his life so that we may have life. Although amazingly, he does it once and for all. There's no more sacrifices anymore. He's the perfect sacrifice. No longer do we need another sacrifice. Okay. In fact, what what Paul talks about is how in the Old Testament, God forgives those people's sins and lets the goat count just out of his forbearance because those animals are pointing to Jesus. That the bulls and goats and sheep, they don't actually count for sin. They only count as a stand-in until Jesus gets there. That's why we don't sacrifice anymore. My job would be very different if we did. He's the perfect sacrifice. Now imagine you're in the first century and you've got this view of how holy God is. But at the moment Jesus dies, the Gospels tell us the veil is torn between the holy and the holy of holies. What that means is that we have full access to God. Now instead of God's holiness being so far apart from us, God is with us. And we have this thing called Pentecost where we become the holy of holies where the Holy Spirit is actually present in our lives. In your life right now, the Holy Spirit's there. Jesus is making the perfect atonement, the better atonement, the forever atonement. So I think there's a lot to be said about the cross from the sacrifice. And I, and I know sacrifice, like that just seems so foreign to us. And we don't like blood. We stay away from blood. But, but if we lose this metaphor, we lose a whole bunch of understanding about who Jesus is. We need to take God's holiness seriously. We need to take our sins seriously. But you know what else the cross really shows us? A gruesome death. Okay, not just a, like, a, a gruesome death. But that's how much Jesus loved you. Okay, this is Valentine's Day. We're going to talk about love. And we have really cheesy, cheap ways of talking about love in our world and our culture. Jesus' way of talking about love is really great. I'll die for you. A gruesome death for you. I'll die the perfect death for you. That's how much I love you this much. I love you, Stretch out your hand on the cross and I love you this much. That's pretty awesome. God doesn't demand that we keep sacrificing sheep and goats. He becomes the sacrifice for us. In fact, Hebrews goes so far as to say he's also the high priest and he's also the temple. He, he's also the altar. Jesus is the whole thing for us. Isn't that amazing? I think it's some amazing symbolism. I think it's worth your reflection as we come into Easter. And if it's not your favorite metaphor, we're going to go over some other ones. The Bible has a couple of different ways they talk that they talk about the cross in there. And maybe one will speak to you more than this one and be more like your metaphor that you stick with a little more. But I think this is an important one for us to hang on to and reflect on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the cross, for your sacrifice, for your grace. Help us to see the symbol as a symbol of love. Help us to be appreciative for what you have done for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn is number 208, Alas and Did My Savior Bleed. This is not maybe as familiar a hymn for you, but... Uh, it's one of my favorites. It, it just has a special way of talking about what Jesus does on the cross. It's number 208.